So, hi, Bella. What was your first computer? <laughs> I, uh, I think it was an uh, Atari, actually. It was, a, it was Commodore six, uh, 64, but that wasn't real. You know, a few print line statements uh, with BASIC, but I think it was an Atari. Oh, really? And everybody else had, um, had an Apple, but I lacked the money, so I, I ended up with an Atari. That is interesting because in my world, the C64 was like the Apple. I had the Spectrum and there was Atari 800XL, I think. This was like the entry level and this was one 520ST, I think. This was the big one. Exactly. Yes. You... Everybody else had an Amiga 500. with color displays, but uh, <laughs> I didn't like it. And there was, a, I remember there were wars between the Atari and the Amiga camps. But, uh, you know, I just used it to uh, program uh, Pascal at the time. Oh, really? So this, this interests me. So uh, first, uh, why you got the computer? How you got it? Oh, I um, wanted to get it because everybody at the university in Zurich, everybody had, um, had an Apple. And because they were too expensive, I got an Atari. And we were taught, I think it was Pascal first up. And then there was another language called Modula 2. Mm-hmm. Later, Modular 3, that was taught at university in Zurich. Mm-hmm. And so um, Atari was a nice, had a nice uh, development environment, although it only had one megabyte of memory, I guess. Okay. Um, you had to uh, flip uh, floppy disks because there were disks for the program, mm-hmm. which was loaded into RAM. And then the data was, was stored on a separate floppy disk. So that was cl- Today, you would just lap one, one megabyte of memory. Okay. But compared to the MS-DOS machines with 640K, that was, a, that was great. So it seems like you, you, you were older. So you're not, you, you, so how old were you? Then? Oh, I don't remember. Because you <laughs> said, because you, you said univer, <laughs> university. So it's, you got your first computer if you were at university? No, no, that was before. It was the C64. Okay. But I didn't really program there. It was just a small, you know, small basic programs. But real serious programming started at, at um, uh, university. Okay. So uh, what interests me, so you got a C64, but you didn't start it immediately programming, right? Yes. You did? Yes. I'm a latecomer. I actually studied um, computer science and English and uh, minored in psychology. Oh. And later I replaced psychology with economics and made uh, computer science my major. So you are actually so dangerous. Background. Dangerous man. This is a, seems like a spy, you know, the, the crossover yes, yes. psychology and, and computers is very dangerous, actually. <laughs> yes, probably, <laughs> but, yes. Yeah, but uh, what interests me, you got the C64, right? From your parents, I yeah. guess. So you started programming immediately or you just played some game first? Well, I, I'm not much of a gamer, contrary to most uh, most developers. I um, told my mother that she needed a computer. Uh-huh. She didn't know why, but I told her she needed to buy one so I could use it. Okay. And then I, yeah, I did play some games, but I was mostly interested in uh, doing some basic programming and just getting my hands on okay. on this 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 um, ah. C64. This is your psychology background, right? How to get your computer? Yeah, probably. <laughs> Okay, and uh, but uh, as a kid, I mean, 
how you get the idea that you have to program something? Uh, you, you saw a movie or, I mean, you know, because, uh, it, I mean, this is an interesting process. So um, you, you, are, you are a kid and now you say, okay, I have to program. So why? How you got the idea? What is the motivation behind? Uh, I don't know. Maybe it was uh, War Games. Ah, okay. I'm not, I'm not sure if War Games came later or it was before. Okay. Um, but um, computers have always fascinated me. But I, I wouldn't be uh, someone who says, hey, I started programming at two and I'm a genius and blah, blah, blah. No. It all evolved. Yeah. I kind of got into it. Okay. So uh, what I learned, you started not with two rather than with three, right? <laughs> okay. Yes. So what was your first Hello World then? Oh, my first application? It was a, uh address list application. Very stupid. Okay. Um, basically, uh, you could add a person's names. Um, Pascal had the concept of records. And then you could uh, append them to a file and, you know, very basic address okay. list. And, this was and then you can even print them. I remember at one point, even um, on the Atari, we were drawing stuff uh, like circles and wanted to print them out. Mm-hmm. And the printer, an Epson something, uh, um, pin, uh, pin-based Epson, um, printed it, distorted it. It was an oval rather than a circle. And so we... Uh, we were actually looking at the hex code that was sent to the printer to try to find out why um, the um, the printer printed an oval rather than a circle. Mm-hmm. At one point, four o'clock in the morning, my friend called me and found out what the he told me what the problem was. It was like a wrong um, control code that was sent to the printer. Okay. In hindsight, you would say, "Oh, this is a waste of time. It's just uh, useless." But you learn stuff this yeah. way. And, but you were older then. So um, if you started, you yes. know, with your uh, address application, I assume it was basic. Then you switched to Pascal immediately or you stick with basic? It was actually Pascal. I okay. switched to Pascal very early because it was taught at university. So it seems like as a kid, you started with basic, then you just played around and then the next serious language was Tubo, uh, Tubo Pascal, right? Or Pascal. Yes. Okay. Um, I, I also tried to know to write a drawing program. But uh, my problem was to think about how to store the figures, you know. So if you draw something on screen, the idea is how to store it on disk. So this was, I thought, a lot about. So, uh, I mean, how to do it. So how how to store the thing. So uh, I actually forgot what I did. But this is what, you know, uh, printing was uh, too far away. But storing the stuff, this was uh, harder. Yeah. I guess you didn't use vector graphics. No, no. Maybe just maps. I... I, I don't even remember, but uh, I think I, 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 draw, uh, I just thought the pixels, which was, of course, uh, too big. But uh, yeah, uh, I was also uh, a teenager back then. Um, right. Cool. So um, you, you did some serious work at the university with Pascal. What was the, uh, I would say, the, the, the first interesting application you wrote? The first interesting application, um, we didn't really write any interesting applications at university it was mainly, um, you know, courses. Um, uh, when we switched to modular two, there were, um, tasks that were given to us mm-hmm. where they had the concept of interfaces and implementations, which I thought was very interesting. Pascal didn't have that. Mm-hmm. And then at the time, at least, and then, uh, they gave us the interfaces and we had to write the imp- implementations. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and bring our code along. And when they actually um, copied our code onto their um, systems, the system was supposed to work. That was a good way to see if, if you failed the test or if you passed it. So it was not really something interesting. It was more or less um, exercises that we had to do. Okay. I okay. guess. The, uh, uh, go I, ahead. Question. Um, it seems like this was just, you know, uh, what you had to do at school or at the university. Did you do something yeah. in your leisure just for fun? No. no. At that time, I was more interested in going out uh, in sports, in playing tennis, and I was not really a geek. Okay. Uh, right. Also, I was heavily involved in chess at the time. I played chess after school. I studied openings, all that crap, and it it's also a time waste in a way. Uh, but it was very interesting at that time because um, you know you can you can really think about uh, what the next couple of moves are and it, it, it kind of exercises your brain. The problem is because I'm a brain person anyway. You're studying, you're using your brain all the time, and then in your leisure time, you're also you're playing chess. Um, it was getting too much, so I I switched. I play. I started playing tennis. How I good really? How good were you in chess? I was not bad. I was almost a uh, champion here in my city, my little uh, small town here, 20,000 people. Um, the last match I played, I was matched against my, my dad. And I said, I'm going to win, of course. So I uh, risked too much and I lost. Had I only tied, I would have become champion. Uh, but I lost and my father didn't become champion either, but he won. So I placed third, I guess. That was okay. not too bad. Okay. Um, but that's yeah. a long time ago. So now you are the champion, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I gave time. up this. <laughs> yeah, Okay. So it seems like you enjoyed you know, the, you, your university time. So what happens afterwards? So when you started, when, when you really enjoyed programming, you started to enjoy programming in some point of time, I guess, right? Yes. I... Um... During the, um, there's like a base, uh, base, um, the first couple of years in university, it's more or less, it's not very interesting. And then, uh, the second, then there's a big, um, a big exam. And then the second part, um, uh, there are seminars and stuff and you have to spend less time at university and work more from home, uh, to prepare for seminars or for, you know, exams or whatever. And during that time, I started working at IBM as a, as a um, part-time um, coder, programmer, whatever you want to call it. And that's when I picked up C. They sent me to a C course. And I was like, um, what the heck is this language? Um, coming from Modular 2 or Modular 3 later, um, uh, switching to C was like a big step down or backwards for me. But I learned C, and I worked at IBM uh, part-time. There, I started writing uh, programs for, for them, uh, parsing data from mainframes and displaying them in a nice way and accessing uh, uh, mainframes through old APIs. Nobody, nobody knows about them anymore. And that's where I actually started getting interesting in systems programming. So after I finished my... Um, my diploma thesis at university, I started a PhD and um, got into uh, systems programming. Not really systems programming, like not writing uh, device drivers or stuff, but um, 
down deep down into into the bowels of the system, AIX at the time. Okay. So uh, what fascinated you back then? So you remember something you did in the leisure or something with programming, you know? What, what, what... You know, what was interesting was when I wrote the program, I could take it, up it, and bring it upstairs, and people could try out, could try it out immediately. Mm -hmm. So people, um, those were not programmers, those, those were business people trying out my stuff was very, that was very satisfying to me. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is, yeah, this is, this is really interesting. So this is like the beginning of Agile, right? <laughs> You're going upstairs <laughs> and you yes. can try immediately what happened, right? Yes. Yeah. I said, I said, I'm going, I, I went upstairs, not downstairs because those guys were higher, uh, on a higher uh, level, uh, than me. And they were business guys or business ladies and they tried out my stuff and that was very satisfying it's the same now it's the same motivation i write, write something in in j groups i add a new feature and people can try it out and that's very very satisfying for me uh, could it be that uh, it's somehow related to the business ladies as well you know your motivation to no, going I, up I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> very good so um so you started with c at ibm Uh, what you did then, I, I mean, uh, you, you stick with uh, system programming. And uh, what also interests me, what was your topic of your PhD? The topic of my PhD is very boring. And um, it was basically, um, oh, be before I got there, I, um, I actually picked up C++. And those were the first compilers, um, Glockenspiel and uh, Turbo, something on Windows. I actually mm -hmm. programmed uh, Windows as well. And... Uh, ancient system called OS2. Okay. And um, then uh, my PhD was about um, um, basically accessing different um, different systems from one uh, from one system. So basically trying to get the meta model of various systems like uh, Corva based systems mm -hmm. and then um, generating code that would transparently access the different Types of systems, um, but, but this is interesting but, actually. So you you wrote as stubs and skeletons, more or less, right? Yes, yes. Um, kind of. Um, Corba was was coming on then, so one uh, part of the system was accessing Corba based systems, mm -hmm. and the other one was accessing an ancient ancient system uh, consisting uh, called CMIP, DMIP. Uh, I don't even know what it stands for anymore and um, this was written in a language um, called GDMO guideline for the definition of managed object a very hideous language okay. and the data part was written in ASN1 or basically defined through mm -hmm. ASN1 mm -hmm. and I came up with a system that would uh, use the metadata or the input ASN1 GDMO, GDMO and IDL on the other side and basically generate metadata that could then be used at runtime to access the different systems. Okay. So it was perfect. like an overarching system to access transparently manage systems based on different um, um, mm -hmm. principles or guidelines. I also started with uh, C, uh, or started, I started with BASIC and Pascal similar to you and C, and then I uh, find out uh, C++ and uh, how I found it uh, is because of Linux and uh, Björn Strustrup's. I remember his book. It was like a thick book yeah. from Edison Wesley. And I was fascinated by C++. What I really like, you know, the C, C in, 
and see out. I remember uh, this is yeah. like you know the operators like the uh, the lesser lesser and, and and larger larger LT LT and 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 uh, you know what I yeah. mean. And uh, yeah. I I played a lot with operator overloading, so I tried to overload everything, you know, <laughs> just for fun. And this was a uh, yeah yeah. And uh, what's what uh, was a really frustrating were the templates under Linux because you had to do some magic stuff to make them work. So I was I was really uh, I didn't like that because I couldn't make it work. So this was my problem. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And the syntax was not was was not uh, was very ambiguous. The C out if you had a, a, a white space between the two um, brackets, then uh, it would mean something else. I uh, remember um, an old uh, friend of mine, Jim Waldo, told me an article um, about how template evaluation could be used to compute the factorial. And that was when I said, that's enough for me. I'm going to, I'm going to, I have to move away from C++. <laughs> and actually I wrote this on my IBM research homepage. Uh, C++ is crap. Uh, Hopefully something will come along that's better. And Java came along. Oh, interesting. Uh, so I, yes. So the templates. Um, I remember you either had to um, write all of your implementation in the interface code, or you had to use magic repositories. I think Borland compiler used that approach, and Pragmas to actually yeah, exactly. The Pragmas. I remember the yeah. pragmas, yeah. And uh, what I also found out that the uh, templates were Turing complete. So for me, it was like you know crazy because it was just another language inside the language. But then yes. I I couldn't make it work with pragmas on Linux. It just didn't work for me with the I remember G plus plus and GCC whatever I did back then. And then yeah. Java was on the horizon. JDK one zero or Oak in my case. It seems in your case was the same. By the way, do you have somewhere you know your statement? Can you put it to the show notes? You're like C++ is crap. You have it still somewhere? Uh, yes. Oh, this would it's be cool. We have to add it to the to the show notes for sure. This would be, you know, why? Okay. And um, you it started was... with, how you go to Java? Oh, Java. My friend at, uh, at uh, IBM Research, he um, uh, went to Darmstadt and that was the first worldwide web conference or the second, I'm not sure. And he brought home Java. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, what's Java? So he showed me this, uh, the nice applets, and I was hooked immediately. Okay. And um, so basically, we were the first. Sorry, the what, first was the what, what was the name of the conference, remember? I think it was the, the third or second Worldwide Web Conference. I think it was world, called Worldwide Web Conference okay. in Darmstadt in, uh, in, in Germany. Yeah, this is crazy because I, I never heard about that in Darmstadt, so. Yes, I didn't. I, I didn't know about it either back then. And he brought back um, Java at the time. It was called Oak. Inside the, the directory structure was all Oak, and uh, he showed it to me. And I, I thought it was really, really nice. Um, we were also the first, um, one of the first um, team in Switzerland to put up um, a web server. Um, NCSA. I'm not sure. Mosaic was the browser. Um, just th this was at the time it was just more or less invented by um, Tim Berners-Lee, I guess. Mm -hmm. And we were the first ones to set up a net net suit, suit server, suit spot, something right? like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Long time ago. So I looked at Java and I liked it, 
and uh, looked very simple compared to C++ it had garbage collection and or C or C++ it had garbage collection so I was hooked unfortunately I was still stuck in two C++ projects uh, so it took me another half a year until I could uh, jump to Java. Uh-huh. And what was your first Java project then? My first Java project was um, a application that was written to uh, extract data from a from a mainframe system or some. Okay. MVS system or so at IBM Research. Okay. So it wasn't really, it was written for a customer. So it wasn't really something that I would have done on my own. Mm-hmm. I was using, I'm not sure if I'm saying this wrong, but I think I was using JNI or something like JNI to actually access a C based system mm-hmm. that I had written. Mm-hmm. So um, trying to convert that application to Java. And but was... it all started, the uh, real serious Java use was at uh, Cornell later. Oh, so you moved from Switzerland to Cornell. Yes, I was interested in uh, doing a, after my PhD, and doing a postdoc. And uh, I was offered a position as research researcher at Cornell University. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I moved there two years and um, that's when I started uh, Java, or basically I, I used Java from the from the onset. And you used the uh, Sun's Java, the JDK one zero, the Sun version, right? Yes. Okay. Yes, I guess. Okay. And uh, so, what you did then? You stick with Java, seems like. So, uh, what happened? So, you, your first project was probably successful, I guess. Yes, I um, um, at at Cornell we had a, a group consisting of uh, four people. Um, Ken Berman, the Pope, he's, uh, he's the guy who kind of invented virtual synchrony, um, a, a paradigm in distributed systems um, programming. Um, Robert Van Rennes and Werner Vogels, who is now, I believe, the CTO of Amazon. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we, were, um, we had a system called Ensemble, which was um, a group communication system and it was written in a language that's very uh, hideous. I didn't like it at all, uh, called, uh, called OCaml. So basically, the object-oriented version of Camel. It's a functional language, but it looked like uh, the, 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 the file had been encoded when you read it. It looked hideous. <laughs> yeah. I did not like it at all. So I, was, I ended up teaching um, two courses, uh, CS101 and CS, I think, 405 or something, the, the distributed systems programming course. And I, my students wanted to actually program uh, distributed systems, uh, write their protocols in Java, mm-hmm. not OCaml. So I ended up uh, writing a thin layer hey, Bella, over OCaml. Hey, Bella. Now, now it is different. That OCaml is like the funky language, you know. So Java is, so everyone says, so Java is crap. Now we have to learn OCaml. Back then, students hated you know OCaml and wanted to have Java. So I would say yes. you only have to wait 20 years and everything repeats, right? Only have to wait for 20 years. <laughs> well, I, you know, the, it's a functional language. The concepts are nice, but I, it's just the implement, the, the, the way they architected the language. I didn't like it. Uh-huh. I like other systems like um, I was a common, I'm a common Lisp guy. I used to write a lot of common Lisp code uh, back then. Uh, it's, much, it's, it's much nicer. Mm-hmm. 
or closure. I looked at closure a couple of uh, years ago. I like it. But um, back then, all camel was, was the way to go, at least at Cornell. So I decided to write a thin layer, um, hiding all camel behind a thin Java layer. And um, over time, I replaced the OCaml stack with a Jake with a Java stack. Mm-hmm. At that time, I called it Java Groups, mm-hmm. and uh, it was very. It didn't have a lot of functionality. It had uh, basically uh, discovery, uh, join, leave, send messages, receive messages, blah blah blah. And I uh, I uh, basically wrote that for my students, so my students could uh, start writing distributed protocols. I'm just wondering, but because back then I think it was at the JDK one one timeline already. So, um, what was your opinion about Genie? So, Genie was probably around back then, Java Intelligent Network Infrastructure, and uh, I guess you didn't like that, right? <laughs> no, I did like it. As a matter of fact, uh, Jim Waldo, who was lead- leading the Genie project at the time, and I um, had met before. And so I guess I can say that now at the time uh, uh, Sun Microsystems and Cornell were working on a collaboration to make Genie distributed, uh, Genie not distributed, but reliable using Java groups. Mm-hmm. And so we were uh, almost um, um, uh, joining for a collaboration on that, Sun Microsystems and Cornell. The problem was that Sun Microsystems wanted to keep everything secret And Cornell wanted to publish, and so this never saw the light of day. But it could have been had it had it had this uh, project proceeded, it could have been that Genie would have been re- made reliable using uh, J groups, using Java groups. It was called Java groups at the time. Mm-hmm. So I did like Genie. I did like RMI as well. Mm-hmm. So the collaboration was uh, Genie slash RMI, mm-hmm. make it uh, reliable, make it redundant. And uh, what I liked in Genie were the concepts because you already uh, did the, the concept of the lease. This was the I would I would say for me at least revolutionary concept where you had to resubscribe yourself you know over and over again. And if you forgot to subscribe, you would just disappear from the from the network, which provided you with kind of self healing, which I really like. I, I still the idea is still in my projects from from back then. So it was uh, for me it was like really interesting. And completely different to, to, to anything else was uh, around at Sun Microsystems back then. Yes. I think the problem, uh, the reason Genie died is that they <clears throat> changed the message a couple of times. Yeah, the marketing First, was terrible. So it was like in, exactly. Ge- in Germany, they tried to, to sell, you know, to distribute printer drivers with Genie. And I say to Sun, you are all crazy. I mean, who will buy technology to distribute printer drivers. I mean, this is completely pointless. But uh, exactly. if they would marketing, you know, Genie as a SOA, it would take off completely, I would say. Absolutely. Um, it, was, uh, it was a good technology, but um, nobody, you know, they didn't have an elevator pitch. I guess um, if you can't say in 30 seconds or in two sentences what your product is about, then you're already uh, lost. Yeah, and that was the, that was the problem with Genie. Yeah, or you know, back then, uh, just building load balancers with Genie was also perfect because you could discover or give give me all, uh, for instance, inst- interfaces on the network, and you can solve right. them according to I don't know, you know, CPU usage or whatever you like. So I mean, 
the whole discovery mechanism was great. And this was 1999. It was 20 years ago. So th this is actually yes. the, the interesting part. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, uh, so it seems like, you know, also funny, you know, Sun tried to, 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 uh, to keep everything secret. <laughs> Which is not that obvious, and uh, and uh, then you, I think, keep moving with uh, J groups, right? With Java groups. Yes, it was called Java groups at the time. Yeah. And um, like the Java Police conference was also called at the time Java Police, and at one point of time they had to rename that. <laughs> yes. Um, I uh, when I moved to California after Cornell uh, to Fujitsu Network Systems. I, I had lunch with, with a bunch of guys I knew back then, like Brian Goetz or uh, Shannon, Bill Shannon. And Bill Shannon, once I went to Sun, we had lunch. Uh, he once said, Bella, it would be nice if you renamed uh, Java groups to J groups. I said, why? Oh, we have a trademark on Java. And it's possible that you could end up with a cease and desist if you continue using the name Java in your, in your product. Mm-hmm. So I decided uh, to look around and uh, find another name. I was looking at what is JGroups? Hmm, it's about multicasting. It's about flexibility. So let's try to use the name FlexCast. Mm -hmm. And I was Googling for FlexCast. But okay. FlexCast is a cast. If you break your leg, it's uh -huh. a cast. And so I couldn't use that. And it, by the way, FlexCast.com was already taken. So I said, why don't I just call it J groups instead of Java groups? Mm -hmm. Some further Googling around, I found out there's another project called J group mm -hmm. and uh, run by two Norwegian guys. And I, I said, okay, let's look at the website. And I, um, I saw they had like two downloads a week. And so I asked them, would it be okay if I call Java groups J groups? That's very close to J group. But, you know, you have two downloads of your, your projects, basically. <laughs> they said, no, it wouldn't be okay. And oh. I said, okay, fine, I'll do it anyway. <laughs> This is psychology again, right? <laughs> yes, yes. And I, I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> But uh, for me, it was important that I avoided that, the, the, the trademark problem. Um, and uh, so I ended up with J-Groups. So Bill Shannon is actually also an amazing guy. So with a conversation back then, he's mathematician, I think, and mm -hmm. and and he's a zero or one guy. So uh, at least for for my impression from from the uh, from from the outside perspective, and we had a chat up regarding Java E APIs, and what uh, mm -hmm. Bill Shannon did because it was logical, and it said, okay, now we have uh, I think it was J Java E E five, I guess. What happened was uh, because uh, from legal reasons, this Java E API was only supposed to use for compiling, It he created a tool and removed all the bytecode implementation from abstract classes. So you could, yes. you, could, you could compile against Java API, but if you wrote a unit test, you couldn't load the library because, uh, because then you get an error, a class format error. And I say, hey, Bill, I mean, this is, the, I know what you, what you mean, but it has to be changed. And after, you know, I don't know, I would say one or two years, uh, he ch he changed that, and I say, okay, let's go. This is not you know correct, but uh, but <laughs> it could work. And he just removed his own tool, and now we can use Java E API or Jakarta E API now anyway to uh, yeah. to run unit tests against that. So we can actually load the API to uh, with class for name, right? And yeah, you mentioned he's Jim, very nice guy. Yeah. And uh, yeah, really nice guy, and he was uh, a great guy for Java E anyway. So he tries, you know, still contributes a lot to to Java. E. 
And um, Jim Waldo wrote also an interesting uh, paper called Note on Distributed Computing. You know, yes. and, and this is interesting because, um, you know, the whole back then everyone thought uh, about um, there was at conferences talks about uh, uh, distributed, uh, sorry, transparent, uh, transparent, um, uh, how is re remoting and, and no distributed computing. And he just wrote, if you distribute a system, it will never behave the same as a local one, which, uh, which is very true. And you cannot just abstract away distribution, right? So the fallacies, the eight fallacies of distributed computing. Yeah. The network is, is uh, there's, there are no failures in the network. Yeah, exactly. I think that was the big problem in, in RMI as well. Mm-hmm. Possibly uh, Corbo, because um, people assumed that the network was reliable. Yeah. And that exactly what you said. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. So, um, you, so back then, so you started, you renamed J Groups, and, uh, and, and you still just use J Groups for teaching? No. Um, when I left uh, Cornell, I actually put J Groups on SourceForge. Okay. And I think that was in May of 2000. Okay. And, uh, SourceForge had just been founded in January of 2000 or something like that, just mm -hmm. a couple of months ago. And uh, I put it on, on, on SourceForge in the hope that somebody would take, take it over. And, you know, it's, it's my little child. It's two years old. I want someone to, to shepherd it through life. Mm -hmm. Or maybe, I don't know, just, just to give the ability, the possibility that someone would pick it up. And then um, I went to Fujitsu um, Network Systems, so basically um, doing something else in Java, but still something else. And then people started uh, contributing to JGroups and sending me patches and stuff, and uh, so it was semi-alive. Mm -hmm. Turns out at Fujitsu, we were in need of a system that um, was able to find out the nodes in a cluster to send messages to the nodes, individual nodes to all of them, to receive messages, to get notifications when nodes died or were started. And turns out I was starting to write something like JGroups. So I asked my manager, is it okay if we actually use JGroups so I don't have to do, don't have to reinvent uh, the, the wheel? He said, okay. And so we started using JGroups, and um, and and I spent about I don't know a fraction of my time on JGroups. What was it in Fujitsu? Can you talk about that? What system was it roughly? It was a network management system. Mm -hmm. We had optical switches, and uh, customers were um, given a, a management system. Mm -hmm. The management system needed to find out where the switches were and manage them. And this was all done using this network management um, uh, middleware, if you so mm -hmm. wish. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, using JGroups. How long did you stay at Fujitsu? Oh, I stayed there for from 2000 till 2003. Um, I um, it was a bad time. You remember the dot bomb? Yeah. Pets.com, uh, Webvan, all those companies went belly up. And um, I, um, we had a strong competition. We had Nortel, we had Cisco as compared. We had Lucent as competitors, mm -hmm. um, and they um, would do everything to get a bid, to win the bid. And so we, they undercut their prices, and we were we were um, going through three rounds of layoffs. 
I was in a nice position back then. I made good money. The product was more or less in its maturity cycle. And uh, I was uh, hoping that they would lay me off because if they laid me off, I would get three months of severance. Back, uh, severance. But that didn't happen. And uh, at the time, that was actually 2002, Mark Flurry contacted me, or actually earlier on Sasha Labure, mm-hmm. who wrote clustering in JBoss. And Mark Flurry, the founder of JBoss, they contacted me <clears throat> and asked me to join them. And I said, no, I'm, uh, I'm very happy here and I make good money. And, you know, I don't join a small startup like you. I actually had to Google what is JBoss. I didn't know JBoss. I didn't know J2E back then. But um, it was kind of getting boring at Fujitsu and everybody was, was afraid of getting laid off. So uh, at one point, Mark convinced me to, to write uh, a cache for the application server, a distributed cache, and I called it JBoss Cache. Mm-hmm. And um, to do that, I had to take unpaid vacation. So I took uh, unpaid uh, PTO. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was six weeks. And we actually wrote that for a big telco company. Mm-hmm. And so I was paid by, uh, by JBoss at the time. Um, coming back to Fujitsu, there were more layoffs. I was still not laid off. So Mark asked me, why don't you join JBoss? I said, no, that's too risky. And so um, he kept uh, calling me and blah, blah, blah. And so I, I decided to ask my boss to take another two months off unpaid. And he said, no. I said, why? You don't need to pay me. I mean, during the time you're laying off people, but you wouldn't, ha- you wouldn't have to pay my salary. It would have to be paid. It would be paid by JBoss. That still no. So I said, okay, I quit. I resigned right then and there. And then I called Mark and said, Hey, Mark, I just resigned. Um, can I join JBoss now? He said, Bella, do you play, uh, do you play poker? I said, no. He said, yes, I know because you just showed all of your cards and, uh, you shouldn't do that, but no, no, it's just a joke. When can you start? So I joined uh, JBoss in 2003, early uh, two th- 2003, and um, started working from home in California. Very cool. And uh, Mark Flurry is also an interesting guy. Uh, 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 he wrote, are you aware of the, I think it's called Blue Paper from Mark? Yeah, there's two, blue and red. I think the blue one I is how, how he uh, applied to uh, BA. And they, they yes. say, yeah, we we don't like you. And then he started, you know, the uh, EJ, EJB or Game Over project, something like this. And then he renamed it to EJB Boss and then was JBoss, I think, right? Yes, yes. I think it was called EJB Open Source System, EJB OSS. And okay. then on, uh, there was a trademark on EJB, and so he removed the, the E. And, and Mark, I think this is like a Special Forces guy, right? Yes, I think he... Um, Joined the uh, the some paratrooping yeah yeah uh, unit in France I guess <laughs> you know lots of interesting guys I mean I would say uh, yeah um, and you started at JBoss how was it it was interesting I was um, thinking oh boy what have I done because I uh, made about twenty to thirty percent less than what I made at Fujitsu. But I could make it up by doing consulting and, uh, and, uh, training and stuff. And so turns out, um, two weeks after joining, I did not know J2E at all. I was teaching a J2E course 
<laughs> so uh, I was thrown into the cold water and I was doing up to 70% or 75% uh, consulting at the time uh -huh. because there weren't enough people around. So I traveled to companies. I did uh, consulting, uh, support and uh, trainings. And turns out I actually made more than what I made at Fujitsu. But that was just a coincidence. I was just happy to work on something that I was that was interesting, that looked like um, that it was a very new technology. It was very exciting to do um, caching distributed systems in uh, JBoss or in the project uh, JBoss Cache, mm -hmm. and that was very satisfying. But the ver very first JBoss Cache, it was a tree cache, right? This is what you wrote. Yes, actually, the day before we announced it. Uh, Mark called me and said, let's call it uh, true cash, not tree cash. Mm -hmm. And I thought maybe he has, he, there was like a, a mistake. Uh, maybe he didn't uh, read my writing uh, correctly. But uh, then I Googled true cash and it was already taken by some, by some. Um, so we didn't have the a marketing uh, person back then. We didn't have legal back then. Uh, so basically we decided it would be called uh, JBoss Cash. Mm -hmm. Very, not very, uh, not very, uh, not a very good name, but um, for lack of a better name, we just called it JBoss Cash back then. Yeah, because uh, it started as, uh, as a tree structure, and then a, a couple of years ago, they moved to, to a hash map or map lay, no, map lay structure. Exactly. Mm -hmm. We decided that one couple of years later, we decided to, I handed over that development to a, a chap called Manix or Tani. Mm -hmm. Uh, because I wanted to focus on J groups after two years working on JBoss Cache. And so at one point he decided, or we decided uh, that it should become a, a regular cache, something like coherence, more like coherence, hash map, a replicated hash map. That's also very simple to understand how it works mm -hmm. and um, also simpler to implement than a, than a tree structure. Yeah, I assume uh, locking is uh, really challenging in, in in a tree if you if you write something because you have to lock up all the nodes. Yes, I I met Manik in a taxi in Poland somewhere. I think it was around 2008. He asked me, "No, what about having a cache with a map inside of a tree? Is it a good idea or not? What are you thinking?" I'm like, I would say it is good enough. You know, <laughs> this was funny. This was yes. Manik Saltani in I forgot the name of the conference in Krakow. It was in Poland, but uh, yeah. 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 Nice. So, um, so you stick with uh, you, so what? What seems like you were the master of J groups. Uh, sorry, of JBoss Cash, and then uh, then you did uh, J groups again. Yes, I went back to J groups, and uh, <clears throat> I, I I I remember I always said version three is going to be the last version that I'm going to. But turns out uh, turns out it was quite successful, not just uh, inside of products uh, sold by JBoss or Red Hat later. Um, but also as a standalone uh, pro uh, project, I have a lot of people who were using um, uh, JGroups as a caching implementation or JBoss cache, caching implementation inside of WebLogic or WebSphere. Mm -hmm. So they could actually purchase the, the standalone version of these products and implement clustering themselves. This seemed to be a very popular uh, use case. Yeah. But now it's called InfiniSpan, right? Yes. Uh, JBoss Cache is now called InfiniSpan. The product is DataGrid, Red Hat DataGrid. And, um, right. And it's, it doesn't look, it, it's basically, it's hash map based. Yeah. And uh, the, so the JBoss Cache 
is like hash map, which communicates with other nodes using JGroups, right? Yes. This yes. Is what JGroups is still used as the clustering uh, layer underneath. Basically, discovery: uh, who are the or what are the nodes in the in the cluster? Um, sending updates through JGroups, uh, receiving updates, receiving uh, notifications when a member crashes or you know leaves or or a new member joins, uh, stuff like this. Yes. Okay, very good. So, um, so you 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 move the uh, JBoss cache responsibility to Manic, and then you stick with JGroups until now, I think, right? So this is the uh, yeah. There was a small um, a small detour I made um, at one point. Um, I uh, was interested in uh, uh, in the cap theorem. Basically, mm -hmm. our system is more or less AP. So I was interested in doing CP consistency and partition handling. And I, I was very interested in um, Raft and mm -hmm. uh, um, Raft technology. Uh, um, um, I read the dissertation uh, by Diego mm -hmm. on Garo, and I started implementing this in uh, on top of JGroups. Mm -hmm. And I actually ended up with a complete implementation of Raft okay. on JGroups. It implements mm -hmm. the full dissertation. And um, my idea is still, I'm not working on this anymore. It's called JGroups Raft. But my idea is still, or the intention is still to go back after I'm done with JGroups. But right now, there's so many things to be done in JGroups. Uh, maybe I'll talk about that a little later. But um, so I hope I will have time to go back to JGroups Raft. I know people are using JGroups Raft, even in production. And... Um, we're thinking of uh, using JGroups Raft to maybe in the future in InfiniSpan. Well, we'll we'll see. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, now you mentioned Raft. So uh, you also have to mention Pexos then. And uh, yes. my understanding is that Pexos is uh, more an abstract concept and Raft is something which can be actually used. It's a more pragmatic explanation and implementation of Pexos, right? Yes, Paxos is just too complicated, and I wouldn't pretend I understand it completely, but there are many implementations, there are many proposals um, to make it uh, simpler. Also, one by my colleague, uh, Robert Van Rennes, Paxos made simpler, I think, or more efficient or better or <laughs> what have you. Mm -hmm. So it shows that there is, a, there is just a, com a complexity in, in Paxos, and I think that's the reason that there are so many people jumped on Raft, and there are so many implementations yeah. of Raft. And what Raft basically is, is a leader election, right? So we have distributed system. It's always the problem. So nothing is really distributed. So actually, <laughs> um, so um, my, my understanding is to, to have a distributed system working, you actually need a local system. So you need a kind of singleton, and everyone agrees the singleton is the master, and everyone else waits until the singleton dies, right? This is the basic right. concept. Right. I guess it's a simplification of Paxos. You don't do leader election on each round, on each um, uh, update, but basically do it once until that leader dies, and then somebody else, somebody else takes yeah. over. It's a very simple to understand uh, concept, mm -hmm. and I guess it could potentially could also be more efficient. But yeah. Um, yeah. as I said, I'm not an expert on Paxos. Yeah, but this is also Raft. So this is what Raft does just for the listeners. It's just leader election system. So the problem is if we have, let's say, five nodes uh, of a cache uh, to to be consistent, what we have to achieve is that uh, the rights are sent to the master 
And uh, if we like, we could potentially read from the slaves, but uh, there should be one, you know, instance, which is the consistent instance and anything else is like for failover and availability and whatever. This is the basic idea. So we need the master and the master election or leader election is a raft algorithm, right? Yes, yes, correct. Okay. And um, yeah, there is a, uh, several raft uh, simplifications. What do you say? Uh, the, the classic raft, I think, is the uh, leader has to be reelected every time. And there is like, I forgot the name, uh, a, a, a optimization of raft where uh, it can, you can keep, you know, to having the leader all the time. So there are s several flavors of, of raft, but yeah. Uh, one question. So uh, JBoss always had the uh, distributed singletons, right? So JBoss from the beginning uh, had uh, the possibility that you can launch a singleton and uh, all the uh, JBoss uh, slaves waited until the singleton dies. So this was like, you know, Raft for Kids or what was it back then? <laughs> it was Raft for Kids okay. because it didn't really uh, take the P in cap into, into, uh, into account. So... The, the partition it didn't tolerate partitions if you um, in if you injected a partition into such a system you would uh, you would end up with multiple singletons yeah so this system is useless to be honest mm -hmm. unless and until you base it on a system like Jacob's raft mm -hmm. which which allows for only one singleton or none so basically it it, it sacrifices availability over consistency and Unless and until you can uh, you can um, live with uh, with multiple singletons, uh, which I think most applications can't. This uh, this system is really uh, for kids. Okay, so just uh, because you mentioned this right now, so funny story. Uh, a customer of mine asked me once. You know, we have uh, two cluster nodes, and it has to be highly available. And they had replica factors of two and two nodes, and. Uh, so what, what they actually did then is, if one node dies, you cannot write, you know. <laughs> you say, okay, if one of your nodes dies, then it's over. Yeah. Uh, you will just, this is what you said right now, uh, one or none. So you are consistent, but uh, the system is useless, but consistent. Right. <laughs> this is uh, one of the trade-offs. What also, funny side note, uh, Java E had singletons. And there was expectations that the singleton be, uh, have to be replicated and say, hey, this is no way to implement that. So we, so, I mean, for Java, we cannot just, you know, magically implement, you know, Duraft somewhere, somehow. It, it, it cannot work. There's also misunderstanding what uh, Java e singletons or application scope beans actually can be. Yeah, yeah. Also, the problem is if you have state and um, there's a partition and the state is replicated and state is supposed to be available only once, how do you reconcile the state? That's a big problem. Most of the time you have to, you have to, Call a um, a function in user code that says yeah vector clocks exactly vector clocks it's something like the Amazon um, Dynamo system mm -hmm. um, which also calls back into user land to uh, reconcile state and that's always very uh, difficult. Question about uh, the J groups raft how it I, I didn't look at the API so how hard is it to use? It's just say you know launch. Give me the leader and you are done, or is it harder than this? It's actually very simple. There's a handle to um, to a, to a raft implementation. Um, the raft is about distributed state, so you have to implement a state machine. Mm -hmm. It's just an interface that says update with a byte, basically a byte array, and get 
with a with a key that returns a byte array. So that would be the state machine. You can run it without the state machine, but then it's more or less useless. And then there's a set, there's a get. I think um, there's a remove. So it's very simple. It's kind of replicated state uh, machine based. So it's a very simple API mm-hmm. and uh, requires a persistent um, backend. Um, we were using, I think we're using RocksDB, um, and um, it's very simple to use. Are you using RocksDB? So you're almost at Kafka level then? <laughs> yes. Well, uh, the, the, the backend, the persistent backend is pluggable. For okay. unit tests, we're using something that's called in-memory state. So it's actually a persistent database that's just in memory. So when it's when it's gone, it's gone. So it's not really persistence, but for unit tests, it's good enough. Do you know MapDB? Uh, yes, uh, we used to use MapDB, and I, I'm not sure. I would have to go back to Jacob's Raft to see if it's still supported. There, at least we had MapsDB. We had two implementation implementations. One was MapsDB. The other one was RocksDB, I think. Okay. Um, so what the state machine is just has to know to remember what, what happened in order if the if the node dies and comes back that uh, that the node knows what happened, right? This is the, the whole idea of the persistent state yeah the state machine or the persistent state basically just uh, is a log an yeah. append only log and um, we're appending uh, updates to the log and there's two pointers one is a commit pointer and one is an append pointer mm-hmm. so commit means everybody's um, agreed on that the commit pointer should be moved forward so those records that are that, uh, that are included uh, in the commit pointer are part Part of the uh, the state, mm-hmm. and the others aren't. And uh, every now and then we do compaction or snapshotting, and basically we're we're uh, shortening the 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 log up to the append pointer. And uh, yeah, it's a very simple API. It's pluggable, so you can plug in your own, you know, persistent engine. Mm-hmm. So Jgroups is also a nice and simple API. So basically, it is one interface. Is J Channel? I think is the name, right? Yes. And you can send and receive uh, messages through that. And uh, I think the the main idea of JGroups, is my understanding, is is UDP, so it's very fast, but it's also reliable. So you wrote on top of uh, UDP some, I don't know um, how to call it, quality of service uh, implementation, which assures that uh, actually the messages will arrive, right? This is what, what JGroups basically is. Right. Um, well, first of all, JGroups is very simple, and I want to keep it that way. It's like uh, join. You have this this J channel as you mentioned. You have this endpoint. There is a join method. There is a send receive uh, leave method. So there's five six methods that you will ever need if you use uh, that endpoint. And um, it is based on a protocol stack which includes a transport. So the transport is used for sending. Could be UDP. Uh, it could be TCP, it could be RDMA, which is in the, in, on the to-do list, it could be uh, NIO, it could be Jet, uh, Netty. And uh, basically that's used for sending and receiving of messages. But as you said, this in itself is not reliable. So UDP is not reliable, packets can be dropped, blah, blah, blah. And so we need to add some reliability layer, some retransmission layer, which uh, tags every message with a sequence number, and then you deliver the messages in the in the correct order. If there is a gap in the sequence numbers, you retransmit. Um, you discard duplicate packets. Basically, what TCP does with IP, 
And on top of that, you can add, um, and that's also protocol-based, you can add encryption, compression, um, auditing, statistics, um, what, whatever you want. You can implement your own protocols. So, so Jacobs is basically very, um, very uh, extensible because you can write your own protocols. Question, why you with re-implementing TCP in Java with UDP is more efficient than using just TCP? Um, some systems, um, when you have 200 nodes um, and you want to send a message to the 200 nodes in TCP, you would have to send 199 messages. So, so sorry. So you have 100 nodes and you want to send one message, one virtual multicast, you would have to send it 99 times um, for every uh, recipient. With um, UDP, with IP multicasting, you could simply just send a multicast, mm -hmm. and that's much more efficient than sending 99 TCP uh, messages. So what it means is uh, J-Groups, um, if you have a view nodes, TCP would be more efficient, and if you have the more nodes you get, the more J-Groups will pay off, right? Yes. So what I'm saying is um, I, this is the... The JGroups gives you the flexibility to use the same ap application. The API is always the same, but to replace the protocol stack with one that's adapted to your networking environment. Mm -hmm. So you can, if you uh, want to use TCP or if you have to use TCP, for example, in clouds, most uh, cloud uh, providers at the, at the time being don't provide um, UDP or multicast support. You have to use TCP then you can do so. But you can add or remove stuff you don't need. Yeah. Uh, in one point of time, I delivered a workshop, Java E workshop. It was the um, uh, uh, IT, how it's called, the workshop target from the Java user group, Swiss Java user group. from, um, And this was in Zurich. And there was one guy, I think it was professor, and he told me there is a guy, Belaban, and he, he has a huge cluster of sun machines, I think in Lucerne, and he's a lab, and he just tests all the time J groups with, uh, with uh, multiple machines. So that's actually interesting. I will have to talk with him at one point of time. And of course, it was uh, five years ago or seven years ago, but I remember that. So, um, what you did in Lucerne with the Sun cluster machines, and how 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 big was the cluster? <laughs> this is interesting because it was um, uh, a lab that was that was opened. Actually, let's go back at Java one. Uh, decades ago, I gave a talk at Java 1, and then there was this one guy, probably is, we're talking about the same guy, um, who walked up to me and with a with a funny Swiss accent and said, uh, I'm from Switzerland, blah, blah, blah. We have a, uh, yeah, so we, we met. And then when I came back to Switzerland, he invited me to the big opening of their new lab sponsored by Sun. Mm -hmm. It was about $3 million, and Sun spent about two. Um, and the rest was uh, the rest was donated by the Swiss government. So it was a huge um, um, sun cluster. And he said, uh, "Would you like to have access to it?" And I said, yeah, "Of course. I'm always interested in running uh, performance tests on huge uh, labs, huge clusters." And so we met, and then um, it was very nice. It was a big reception, and they opened it officially. And it was the biggest and uh, fastest sun machines at the time hardware. Um, but I had to do something in return. I had to teach a course. 
oh. at their at the university, and I've been teaching that course for almost 15 years now. Oh, <laughs> very good. Yeah, so, yeah, but yes. I got something that. And by the way, talking of big labs, I um, I have friends at Google, and who gave me access to their um, their big their big clouds mm-hmm. before anyone else was on the cloud. So I was able to start a cluster of 2,300 and something, 2,000 plus nodes mm-hmm. and run J groups on that. That was very impressive. Yeah, and it worked well? Better than expected? Yes. Or? Actually, the, the bigger problem was to get the 2,000 nodes started because they had the G Cloud. Uh, I'm not sure if this is still the, the case. The G Cloud command was based on Python. Mm-hmm. And uh, turns out I was running out of Python file handles when okay. I started um, the, the huge cluster. So I had to start them in batches of 200 or 300 nodes at the time. Okay. Um, what strikes me, I mean, this J-Groups is like, you know, how to call it, um, expert knowledge, but it's very easy to use. And people try, you know, to, 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 to find more and more solutions, which are crazy complicated. They look like Corba almost, always. They never mention yeah. Corba, <laughs> but they look like Corba. So they, they know the history repeats again. They say Corba is crap and bloated and now we have something like grpc <laughs> if you look at that is actually exactly like corba if you yes. try to to, to in- integrate with java it's pain actually it is uh, and the, the, the whole reactive programming makes sense in some cases i would say but if you just would like to call another service just call a method or just you know just invoke a method it's just golden i would say it's just very simple and um and um good I, point. I, yeah good point I'm very curious. Um, you, you talk about reactive programming. I'm not sure if I really like it. I like, kind of like it, but I think it's very difficult for um, application programmers like uh, the callback hell in JavaScript. And so I'm very interested in uh, seeing what happens with Project Loom when we have fibers. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fibers are supposed to be like green threads, but much more efficiently done. They don't block. Mm-hmm. And so they don't never block the carrier threat. So I'm very interested um, in seeing, you know, I've heard of experiments where people were running a couple of million threads on their laptops. Uh, I'm very interested uh, to see if this is going to kill reactive programming to exaggerate. I, I mean, the reactive programming, I would say, so the problem is people like, like you, you know, you go to conferences, this is the actual problem of IT, people like Bellaman, Bellaban, why? Because you, you started 2,000 cluster nodes at Google, you go to conference and talk about that, right? So then the developers hear you, they go back to, to, to home, they have just one cluster node, but they would like to have reactive programming and 2,000 nodes for a guestbook application, you know, and they try to write mm-hmm. uh, overcomplicated systems. So I would say mm-hmm. um, the, the Loom, could be interesting if you build a cloud or platform. So if you're building a business apps, less so. So And reactive programming is the same for me. So sometimes it is just natural to use reactive programming if you have, let's say, an, a feed of events somewhere, right? So I, I receive data from somewhere. Then it's very natural to me, you know, to have something like a data structure it looks like stream in Java. I map it to the, to, the, to the feed and I'm just going with that. So I filter, do whatever I, I, I can, and I just write the data out and I'm done. But if I have right. request response mechanism or I need a user interface, either I will do everything reactively or nothing, you know? The problem with right. reactive programming, you cannot break it. So if you have request response at first, 
and then you start with reactive is mess because uh, as you probably you know if you have an asynchronous method call it's really hard to block somewhere because the question is how how long you would like to wait until something happens what happens with exceptions what happens with poison messages this is the problem so i would say reactive programming is great if everything is reactive so then it's just you know natural way to go but you cannot just mix the things and most business applications are just boring we have a database it's already there and we need yeah. to to have some kind of rest api for javascript and, and and then we are done and if you start you know to be to be fancy somewhere in between it gets more and more complicated this is the problem it's a hunt yeah it's a hunt and you know i'm uh, <clears throat> if i had to read up on the latest technologies the latest hypes that come up i'd be busy spending my day doing only this yeah <clears throat> so what i do is i ignore all of this yeah I don't look left or right, but every couple of months, I take a few, maybe every half a year, I take a mini sabbatical, a couple of weeks, and look only into the hypes. The advantage of this approach is that you can skip hypes that are dead by the time you start looking into them. For example, <laughs> for example, asynchronous programming, I think it's very nice but it's overhyped and it's not the solution to all problems. So a lot of people think it's a solution to all problems and start look, start writing all their systems reactively. I think that's wrong. So um, Project Loom, I think hopefully we can go back to the re- request response kind of blocking mm-hmm. uh, semantics, mm-hmm. but you don't block the underlying thread. So if you had a system that was not reactive, but more or less request response blocking, paradigm, um, perhaps with Project Loom and Fibers, you can just continue using it without any major changes, and that would be beautiful. Yeah, but this is like, you know, optimization behind the scenes where uh, as a business developer or, or application developer is not, I know, that exciting. I'll say for us, you know. Um, right. what, what I would like to mention is the problem is, you know, one single application server, let's say, you know, Whitefly is just too fast. It is amazing how much load uh, a single application server can actually process, and uh, yes. and and therefore <laughs> everything becomes boring. You know, I I I just coaching some startups. They, they, they some of them using Whitefly. I assume majority of them using Whitefly right now, and um, some of Quarkus, and they they keep me asking. You know, we do nothing to 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 optimizing the performance, and it's just crazy fast. So how they do it? It's like because they do nothing else for thirty years. So everything is optimized. We have Java. Everything is great. There is no need, and they are just confused. They ask me, you know, what about reactive programming? It's like if you like, do it. But do you have a problem? I mean, <laughs> we have a lot. You know, it it is uh, there is no no crazy RAM consumption or the CPU. Everything works smoothly. Why you would change your code? And uh, yes. so I think reactive programming is really nice. You have to know about that. And in user interfaces, for instance, could be something different because if you you can consider a mouse like a feed, you know, like a source of events, and you can react to it. So you could do this. But this is just another. It's not like you know, it changes everything. It's just another option. And uh, asynchronous programming is even worse. So uh, you you know Java E probably. So in one project, uh, people wanted to be funky and and did everything asynchronous at asynchronous. So they put a lot of asynchronous annotations on the methods. And uh, what problem was, the queue is bounded. The amount of threads was uh, was set, so, uh, was also bounded. And what happened then is if you call from one asynchronous call, another asynchronous call, um, and, uh, and it uh, creates another HTTP request, which lands in the same queue, you, you, you get stuck. 
So in one point of time, you know, all the clusters went down because uh, mm -hmm. there was not enough threads to process. And we switched oh. back to requests and response, and it works until now. No problems, very fast, you know. There was actually solution to a problem which didn't exist. That's a problem. Right. I mean, if you give everybody only a hammer, then everything uh, is a nail or perceived to be a nail. Mm -hmm. And I guess, uh, as he said, uh, look at the problem, look at uh, whether performance is good enough. If it's good enough, fine. If it starts uh, hitting the wall, uh, maybe you should uh, start looking at the asynchronous program, your reactive program, or maybe start experimenting with uh, Project Loom, which um, yeah. requires fewer changes. And don't just use reactive programming because uh, there, there are people at conferences give talks. I call them the PowerPoint monkeys. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they preach that uh, that's the next uh, best thing. And so everybody does uh, asynchronous programming or reactive programming. But um, if you that's come back just to reactive okay. programming, when it could make sense, let's say we get reactive GDBC drivers, which uh, what it means is we could, for instance, you know, uh, say, I would like to read from the table, and then asynchronously you would receive the updates. So if you do it from, from the UI, so the UI calls without blocking, let's say with WebSocket and JavaScript, it goes, you know, to the REST, and the REST method is suspended asynchronous, so it's just, you know, one way, fire and forget, goes to database, and through another channel, we receive the data and comes back to the user interface, and everything is uh, asynchronous, this is beautiful. So this is simple. Yes. But you cannot just mm -hmm. use, you know, traditional REST in the front end and then just reactive JDBC drivers because in one point of time you will to block somewhere and this, you know, and this uh, this destroys the whole nice concept. Agreed. Yeah. Cool. Uh, one optimization I could give you, you, you will have to redesign the jgroups.org page. And uh, the easiest way to do this is, uh, no kidding, I also did it, is you have a GitHub account with JGroups. You can have yeah. a static uh, templates. It takes 15 minutes, and you get a great-looking JGroups page based on GitHub from GitHub pages. Excellent. Uh, when are you going to send me the PR? Um, it is hard, but what I can send you is one of my projects where you can just copy and paste the uh, what I did. But uh, it, I could probably one point of time do the PR. But, uh, you know, and the problem is, you know, the colors, the fonts, you will have to be a little bit creative, Bella. So uh, if this and is... I wasn't actually. If you um, Have you ever looked at the Apache HTTPD page? I mean, this page, the JGroups page, was copied. I'm a thief. It was copied from Apache. Yeah. And it <laughs> looks like it, like it looked 20 years ago. Yeah. So the, the problem is the gRPC pages are looking better, you know. They're all... Uh, reinvented Corva stuff, so and I would really like to use J groups a little bit more in my projects. So <laughs> yeah. we need a nice design. By the way, we we skipped one important thing. So um, Quarkus, what you did, yes. you exposed J groups as a Quarkus extension, yeah. where we can really inject with at inject J channel into Quarkus, and this is actually great. So um, yeah, I think it's, um, I, I experimented with Quarkus uh, before it was uh, published public, and uh, um, and it was uh, Sane Grinovero. He's the Hibernate lead or Hibernate search lead. He's now in Quarkus. Mm -hmm. Him and I we had a session half an hour or forty five minutes, and we ported J groups to Quarkus, which mm -hmm. shows that it's very um, 
that the code is actually very, very nice. There was one major change we had to make. It wasn't really major, minor, and it was working on Orcus. So um, I'm very excited. I, uh, I experimented with this a little bit. Uh, you can uh, you can get a simple application based on JGroups, standalone JGroups application, running in like uh, starting in a, in a millisecond. Mm -hmm. So it's very very nice. Have you not noticed any optimizations just in the hotspot mode or just? Uh, yes. Well, um, I think uh, you're mentioning the Java mode, the, the hotspot mode. Yes. That's actually, I'm told that's the most frequent thing that people are using. They're, they're not using the native image, but they're exactly. using the hotspot, the optimized image, uh, because then a hotspot can still optimize stuff. Exactly. Um, I have, I, I, to be honest, I focused on the, uh, the native mode. Okay. Uh, the, the thing is, it, the native mode is less performant than the hotspot mode, but it's always uniform. Every run yields more or less the same result mm -hmm. because there's no optimizations done at, at, at runtime. Mm -hmm. um, hotspot, I haven't, to be honest, I haven't experimented with. Okay. Um, what you, you told me that uh, you do a few weeks a year, like hunting the, um, what do you say, the hypes. And um, uh -huh. yeah. What uh, I actually ignored, you know, all the whitefly swarms and thorntails. Actually, at Java One, there were the people from Thorntail team, I think, and they asked me about my opinion, and I was politically correct. I said I don't see the point. I, as a whitefly is fast enough. I don't. I don't. I have no idea what you're doing with the whole thorntail. As a, for me, there is no problem uh, or solution without a problem. But then, you know, yeah. Quarkus came up, and I, it's like another runtime. When I t took a closely a look on it, and what this is, this is actually what what really what us excited excited from day one, and not just because of the performance. Because uh, what I did back then is uh, lots of microservice development, and in microservices, what we use, we use you, we misused Whitefly or Payara or Open Liberty as the efficient and I would say uh, usable runtime to implement implement business applications, and we had always mm -hmm. one to one relation between the application server and the war. So what we basically did, we had one thin war, we uh, shipped that always in a Docker containers one-to-one -one with the server. And I was happy because the servers were small. And what yeah. Quarkus was for me, it was, you know, the, the a cons consequent optimization of the idea. And what they did is they just deploy at build time. This is what they did with tree shaking and everything. So what it means is it, it happens exactly the same what I did before, but this is optimized. So, uh, this deployment doesn't happen, you know, just because they find a war in a folder, scan it, and apply reflection to load it, which causes a lot of unnecessary bloat, I would say. What they do, they do it up front. So they build everything with some interesting side effects. They will find, you know, easier CDI errors. So for me, it was genius. If I saw this, it's like, hey, the first time I see something which actually makes sense. And uh, now it's smaller and whatever, but I mean, the idea is great. Yes, I, I uh, like the KISS principle, <clears throat> too, in my software. Keep it simple and stupid and yeah. small. When I can remove stuff from JGroups, and I will, uh, I'm working on five now. Um, I just released uh, the, or I merged, uh, made master five, mm -hmm. uh, the five branch. And I have a bunch of gyros in there to remove stuff like Zazzle and stuff we don't need. And deprecated classes. I'm happy to keep um, my jar has always with uh, tests and demos has always been uh, around two megabytes, 2.1 megabytes. Now I'm happy to actually make it even smaller, 1.8 megabytes or whatever. You know, um, 
I don't believe in having a huge transitive um, dependency, a uh, transitive uh, dependency tree, um, um, which pulls in the internet. But um, I actually have no dependencies. Jacobs has no dependencies, um, and and so it's very small and and very um, very easy to change to new technologies like Quarkus. Took me 45 minutes to port uh, Jacobs to Quarkus to make it Quarkus compliant, so I could actually generate Quarkus native image. And I, I believe in that. Keep it simple and stupid. Yeah, absolutely. So on that note, I think we have to stop. Otherwise, we would talk, you know, 24 hours. And this is a little bit too long for a podcast. So the most imp important thing, so where people can find you on the internet, and uh, if, if you're just still doing the, the trainings, do you have some trainings in the pipeline the next time? Yes, I, um, I want to um, uh, uh, come up with a workshop again, one in Europe, one in the US. Mm -hmm. And uh, the tentative date was April, but... Um, there's always stuff that uh, that uh, that has to be done before that to do lists and uh, you know uh, emergencies. So I still hope to do it this year, maybe in the fall. Mm -hmm. But uh, if uh, you're interested, um, join the mailing list on jgroups.org, mm -hmm. uh, and I will announce it there. Very good. And do you have a Twitter account? No, I don't. Um, blog? I have a blog. Yes. Um, it's uh, on Blogspot. Blogspot, okay. So I will find it. Okay, so perfect. So, and what 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 your workshops are about? Are it just uh, J groups with Quarkus a little bit now, or? Um, yes, I will have to take that into account. So I'm thinking it was always about J groups, the API that was a simple the simple part. Then uh, what are the most important protocols that are that are used? How can you look at the system, a running system in, in production, for example? How can you change uh, things or extract information from a running system? What I want to do in the new workshop that's based on five um, will be um, Quarkus, a Quarkus part, and the other part will be cloud. Um, there will be a Kubernetes part. How do you run uh, J-groups in Kubernetes, OpenShift? Um, these two, these are two major additions to the workshop. I'll probably remove some of the more theoretical stuff so that it stays the course. It used to be five days, now it's four days, and I hope to keep it at four days. Okay, cool. So thank you, and uh, I would like to reinvite you again and talk a little bit about Project Loom or uh, or J groups more specifically this year, if you have time. All right. Okay, thank you. You're welcome.